Hey, welcome to another podcast. Today, I'm talking to Joanna Ilska, who is the Genetics Research Manager at the Kennel Club. That's the UK Kennel Club, if you're listening to this from abroad. And yeah, this was an incredible podcast, very unique podcast, really unique opportunity to talk to uh, Joanna and to talk to someone that is, you know, doing such interesting work at the Kennel Club. Um, So yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I definitely finished it thinking that we should do another episode. So that's always a very good sign. And I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Before we get started, though, I do want to tell you about an event we're running here in Bristol which is the Introduction to Bike Drawing event with Cat Le Chevalier. We're doing that on October the 7th. So if you do fancy finding out more about bike drawing or trying it out with your dog, learning how to actually get started in it, then you can do that by going to houndplus.com, clicking on the events tab, and then you'll be able to see all the details and get yourself signed up. Would be really cool to see you there. But let's get started, shall we? Hey, Joanna, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I'm really excited to do this podcast. And oh, there's so much I want to talk about. Where do we even start? But maybe before we get started, you could tell us a little bit more about who you are. Yeah, no problem. Um, So my name is Joanna Ilska, and I work as a genetics research manager for the Kennel Club. Um, I've joined the Kennel Club fairly recently, two years ago. Um, Before that, I was uh, based, well, primarily at the University of Edinburgh. So I did my um, BSc, MSc, and then PhD. Um, and after that, I spent another six years doing uh, various postdoc projects in genetics um, in various species. But fairly recently, after, after doing those postdocs, I got to the stage in my career where I had to decide what exactly I wanted to do. And my dream for my whole life, I've always been a dog person. I wanted to work in, in, <clears throat> in dog genetics. So unfortunately, the world of dog genetics is, is um, quite challenging when we look at it from the research perspective. So there is quite a big, uh, big, big body of research done in the kind of medical genetics, uh, partly because dogs are used as model species for human diseases. Um, but for me, I've, I've always been interested in the breeding aspect, um, specifically how is it that we created those amazing breeds with with such differing uh, temperaments and looks as well. Um, And that is a a much more difficult area to to get specialized in uh, from the point of view of of academic research. Um, But I knew Tom Lewis, who was my predecessor at the Kennel Club. And uh, when he decided to to take on a new position, he's at the Guide Dogs at the moment. Uh, I decided that, yeah, working at the Kennel Club would be a, a great choice for me. Yeah, that's really cool, actually, because you're right. I, I haven't really thought about it, but it is a very niche job, isn't it? There really can't be a lot of positions that, you know, like similar positions. Like you mentioned the guide dogs there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very niche. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> there are a few of us across the country, but um, majority of the geneticists that deal with well, technically, we would prefer that uh, as quantitative genetics, so dealing with, with kind of complex traits. Um, majority of the scientists that do that sort of research, uh, they'll do that almost on the side, uh, and their primary uh, kind of research interest will be complex traits in, in various species, uh, primarily in livestock. 
So I did my master's on dogs, was on elbow dysplasia and Labrador retrievers. And then I did a side project. So that wasn't a part of my job, but yeah, I wanted to, to be still involved in dogs. So I did a, a little paper on the behavior, genetics of behavior in, in Labrador retrievers as well. But my paid job uh, was primarily in livestock, uh, chickens, cows, and uh, my last project was actually on trees. Oh, wow. Okay. Are Labradors your thing or was that just a convenience? No. Uh, so the Labradors have the benefit of being a large numerically breed. Uh, so it's relatively easy to, to get enough data to, to perform the analysis that we, we wanted to do. Um, no, my, my, my breed is Russian Black Terriers. Oh wow, that's a that's a niche breed. How did you get into them? Uh, well, it's it's actually very similar to well, maybe the the origin of the story is is, is a bit different to yours. Um, so I saw them for the first time in '97. I was just 12 years old then, um, and yeah, it was a love at first sight. Um, I spent hours and hours uh, looking at pedigrees. Uh, at that time, I had limited access to internet, so I was actually collecting show catalogs and, and typing in my computer the, the names and pedigrees of, of dogs, basically. Um, yeah, and when my friends had posters of you know, Michael Jackson or, or Backstreet Boys, I, I had my whole room uh, plastered with pictures of, of Russian terriers. So um, it took a while before I got my first one. Um, it was after I moved to Scotland, but uh, yeah, it's 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 my breed i have to say yeah uh there's no other breed that that really takes all the boxes like like they do for me yeah i know what you mean uh i i think anyone that's a dog person has maybe had like a really similar story because i remember when i was a kid my nan had like the books that listed all of the dog breeds so you just spend hours just flicking through being like i want that breed i want that breed (laughs) Uh, it's interesting how i don't know if it has for you but i look back now at some of the breeds that really appeal to me when i was young and they really don't appeal to me now so it's really interesting how maybe preferences change over time and not even just um on an individual level because i was talking to alison skipper about i think it was alison skipper i was talking to this about um about how breeds like come in and out of favor you know because it, it, it seems like over the last how i don't even know how many years but there's just been this trend of larger breeds actually like decreasing in popularity and smaller breeds increasing in popularity generally i don't know if you've noticed that as well oh, at the absolutely kind of club. absolutely um so it is really interesting i i have been looking at the um trends and in, in, in statistics recently uh registration statistics and um, and i have been trying to find whether there are any um well, regular trends. So let's say if we if we have a breed that has a moderate size uh, of, of population at one point, is it going to increase in popularity in the future or, or decrease? Um, but unfortunately, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't work like this. Uh, there are these weird trends that are well in, in the nineties and eighties. Definitely, there were there were influences of the TV programs. So we've had the boom in Dalmatians. We had the boom in German Shepherds uh, that Alison Skipper, Skipper was talking about with the Rin Tin Tin. Um, more recently, it's it's fashion driven by social media and influencers. So um, it's it's quite a bizarre one. Um, and yeah, sometimes maybe a little unexplained. Um, the poster, the, the poster child of, of uh, increasing trends in popularity is obviously the French Bulldog. 
Um, in 2000, we had, I believe it was like 600 puppies registered in a year. And now we are looking at, I think it was like 55,000 or, or yeah. that. So it's a crazy, crazy increase in popularity in a very small space of time. Yes, actually, I've looked at this, a little bit of data on this as well. And I remember when that was happening and it was really crazy because uh, I remember it going from like, as you said, like a couple of hundred to like 20,000. And at that time I was like, wow, that's that's crazy. What what impact does that have on genetics though? When you have like a breed that's actually not very common and like over a short period of time, you're just going from small numbers to huge numbers. What's the kind of genetics behind that? Yeah, so um, there are two slightly conflicting uh, uh, contexts when, when we talk about increasing in, in, in fashion, in, in popularity of a breed. So from one side, from the point of view of genetic diversity, that could be actually seen as, as a slightly good thing, because if you have an explosion in popularity, you will increase the number of dogs that you're breeding from, especially when it comes to the females. Uh, because even if someone is not really adhering to the best breeding practices, there's still biological limits. How many litters can you breed from, from a female dog? Um, so genetically, that means that more of the genetic variants that are present in the population are going to pass to the next uh, generations. But then on the other side of that coin, uh, we have dogs that perhaps have problems, either health problems or temperament problems that are also passed on to the next generations. Um, so we have more indiscriminate breeding. Um, so quite often you will see people that just want to produce the puppies so they can sell them without really paying attention to, to what uh, dogs they are breeding. So there are two sides uh, to, to, to that, uh, unfortunately. Even though you're breeding like more, you have like a bigger selection pool, aren't those dogs going to be related? So it doesn't that come with like the dogs, like, and that doesn't that start causing an issue because like from if you're only looking at like a small couple of generation pedigree it can seem like the dogs are unrelated but actually because of because it has exploded so quickly maybe those dogs are actually all related because they've come from a small breeding pool yeah so if you're talking about a close breeding population then yes of course uh, at some point all these dogs will be related they will be traced back to the breed founders um, but if you compare the situation where you have a close breed where only a small proportion of dogs are being bred from versus a small breed, a close population where all the dogs are, are being bred from, you are still increasing the, the genetic diversity that is passed from one generation to the next. Oh, this see, this is hard for me to get my head around because I'm not a geneticist. <laughs> maybe, maybe when I say increase genetic diversity. So we are not increasing the genetic diversity in the generation two versus generation one. We are increasing yeah. the, gen the genetic diversity as compared to the situation where only a small number of dogs is being bred from. Is that okay. clear? But how do you get more genetic diversity, though, without having any new individuals? I mean, any new, like, uh, DNA, right? Because you, you just have... Um, how can I? I'm no, trying to no, think no, of no, like no. A... I, I know where you're going with this. So yeah, you're absolutely right. If you have a close population, there is very so. The only way that new genetic diversity is being created is through mutations, new mutations okay. that appear in the in the DNA, uh, and those mutations happen in every single individual, but on a large scale, they are actually very very rare. 
So typically, when we talk about increasing genetic diversity, we talk about introducing individuals from different populations. And these could be individuals from another breed, so we're talking about crossbreeding, but it could also be introducing individuals from a ge geographically separated breed that has been separated for, for quite a few generations. So the, the UK, let's say, national population of dogs has diverged genetically from, from the population in, let's say, South Africa. Um, and these dogs from South Africa could introduce the new genetic diversity that we haven't had in the country for, for well, we, we haven't had that just ever. Um, so mm. these are the two methods. You have the natural naturally occurring mutations, which are extremely rare. And, and in reality, they are going to have very little impact on increasing genetic diversity. Um, on the other side, you have the, the uh, imports, basically, uh, or... Well, crossbreeding. How much of a, a difference does it make with the mutations? Like, how much does that contribute? Because, for example, and I can't remember the like term that's used now, but I remember, uh, you know, where they will equate like this breed has the equivalent of like twenty individuals for worth of DNA. If that makes sense. So this is this is. Uh... This is a slightly different concept. So uh, what you're, I think, referring to is the effective population size. That's the one. Yeah. That's the one. <laughs> so the effective population size is a term that we use to actually describe the loss of genetic diversity. So we talk about you know, the size of the population being 50 or 100. Uh, but what we are primarily concerned with is the loss of genetic diversity. So basically, the effective population size describes the size of an idealized population where you start with completely genetically diverse individuals, so this is idealized population, and they are randomly breeding. Uh, but because the population is closed, is small, you will have a loss of genetic diversity just because of the fact that not all animals will be bred from and not all animals will pass all of their genetic variants to the next generation. So um, the effective population size tells us how small would that population have to be to lose, to lose the genetic diversity at the same rate as the rate that we observe in the actual population of, let's say, Labrador retrievers. So yeah, it's a fairly difficult concept, but, but it is hugely, hugely useful. No, I remember someone made a really good YouTube video. I'll try and find it and put it in the show notes. I feel like maybe we're going to have a long show notes section in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might, because... be, it might be useful to, to provide some background reading material, yeah. Yeah, totally. Because in some breeds, like for example, the one that comes to mind is Nova Scotia, duck tolling retrievers. Like they have a really small effective population size, if I am correct. And um, this is like a big problem with the breed because even if you try and import dogs, like, you know, there's like limit, there's limited ability to uh, in, in like get much genetic diversity. Um, just like anecdotally, I know people that have, uh, I've, we've actually had a surprising number of Nova Scotias. I don't know. I, I don't know why, but we've just had quite a few just like randomly. Um and they are really susceptible to health issues. And I imagine a lot of that is down to just inbreeding and then the like lack of ability to actually get away from the genes that you don't want. Yeah, uh, well, definitely when we talk about uh, imports and introducing the genetic diversity from, from uh, divergent populations, there will be differences between breeds and between populations. So for some breeds, um, such as Nova Scotia or Burmese Mountain Dog, um, there was a study recently 
um, that looks at the genetic similarity of Bernese mountain dogs in different uh, geographic regions, they are all very similar. So if you actually import a Bernese mountain dog from America to, to UK, you're not really going to introduce much genetic diversity because they are basically the same population. Whereas when you look, for example, at Labradors, um, some studies have shown that there is a genetic divergence between the UK and the USA population of Labradors. So in that situation, importing a dog from USA could introduce the genetic diversity to, to, to our population. So unfortunately, with, with, like, with <clears throat> a lot of concepts that we'll be talking about today, it all depends on the breeding question and the populations that you're considering. With that genetic difference between like American Labradors and UK Labradors, is that because, you know, those maybe the individuals that founded those populations were just different? Or is it because some crossbreeding has happened? Or is it because of the mutations? Like, why, why is that a genetic difference? So um, I don't want to be pulled up on the history of, of Labrador Retrievers. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm sure that there are people that uh, will know much more uh, about that than myself. But in general, when we talk about pedigree dog breeds, uh, the founder population was the same for UK and, and the USA populations. However, um, over time, we start seeing the divergence in populations that are separated through, first of all, the loss of uh, of, of variants because of the inbreeding, um, well, the random loss of, of genetic variants, but then also uh, introduction of, of new variants through the mutation. So we've said that uh, the mutation is not going to have a huge impact on the genetic diversity at a single you know, generation level. But if you talk about thousands and thousands of dogs bred every year for a number of generations. So I believe that the stud books for Labrador Retrievers were uh, closed in 1920s. Oh, I should say breed registers uh, following Alison's uh, podcast. <laughs> so following the 1920s, we've had the average uh, uh, generation interval in Labrador Retrievers is about four years. Um, so we've had quite a few generations where new mutation was being added. So if you have two populations that are completely separated, there is no um, interchange of, 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 the, uh, of the breeding stock. Those populations will start to diverge in slightly different directions. Because a, an important concept to, to, to understand what, when we talk about the genetic diversity or, or, or genetic composition of a breed is that there is no one set of genes that defines this is a Labrador, this is a French Bulldog. Um, the genetic variants that we see in a population are, are, are fluid. They will change over time. So with the geographic uh, isolation, you will see that the uh, populations will start to move in slightly different directions. And then after enough time of separation, they will start to actually be slightly different. Um, mm. So with... When we compare Labrador Retrievers to, to, let's say, breeds like Bernese Mountain Dogs or Russian Black Terriers, we have huge population of Labradors in the UK. We have huge population of dogs in the USA. Um, so there isn't really the, the, the impact of imported dogs on those populations is relatively small. When we talk about dogs like Bernese Mountain Dogs or Russian Black, Black Terriers, in, in UK, for example, Russian Black Terriers, majority of the breeding is done with, with the use of imported dogs. Uh, so here you have the constant kind of mixing of, of, the, of the genetic variants that are in the, in the country with 
the ones that are, let's say, in Russia or, or Poland, because we have a lot of imports from Poland. Uh, with Labrador retrievers, that impact will be much, much smaller. So the, the overall uh, separation of the breeds will be more, more uh, observable. I know sometimes I feel like, because I'm really passionate about trying to get that genetic diversity, sometimes I feel like it's stating the obvious, but then every now and then I'll come across someone that just just doesn't see it that way. So maybe you can uh, tell us why why should we even care? Like why why care about having genetic diversity if you're breeding healthy dogs to each other? You know, why care that about about whether they, they have... Uh, lower or higher percentages of inbreeding? Yeah. Uh, well, it, unfortunately, it's not a simple answer. Um, and uh, there, is, there is a lot of things that need to be considered when we, when we talk about uh, genetic diversity. But overall, um, when we talk about inbreeding, maybe let's talk about inbreeding, which is the kind of, well, it's not exactly, but let's say that it's the opposite of, of genetic diversity. Um, and specifically in breeding depression. So the reduction in, in the fitness of a population uh, caused by the increase in, in breeding. We're talking about, my, my uh, mentor and professor used to call it uh, the unknowns, uh, the deleterious unknowns. So uh, every single individual, be it a human, dog, any, any sort of living being has a number of, of mutations in their genome that are completely new to them. Um, and unfortunately, majority of those mutations will be deleterious. Now, if you have a completely open population, uh, that is not a problem, because if I have this new mutation, uh, then I have 50% chance of passing this to my offspring, 25% chance of passing this to my grand offspring, and, and so on. So with every generation, that chance becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. So if you have a huge population, the chances that there will be two individuals that will have the same mutation that originates from me, let's say, are getting really, really, really small. When we have a close population, that becomes a problem because at some point, all the dogs can be traced back to founders or some other common ancestor. So we are increasing the chances of uh, inheriting the same deleterious allele that originates from that common ancestor. And now the problem is that for majority of those, because they are novel, because they are typically rare until they reach some, some, some level of frequency, they are not really described. So you could be breeding dogs that appear to be healthy for all the known conditions, but they could be carrying condition, uh, the, the mutations that are responsible for completely novel and really quite horrible diseases. So when we talk about uh, minimizing inbreeding, we are trying to minimize the risk that an individual dog will inherit those unknown deleterious uh, variants and, and get a new disease that has not been described before, maybe, or has not been seen before. So uh, with inbreeding depression, it's very much minimizing the risks of unknown problems versus um, you know, doing health testing for the conditions that we already know. Um, and unfortunately, it is very well studied across a number of different species um, that inbreeding depression is a real thing. Now, when we start talking about increasing genetic diversity, and, um, you know, on paper, things are, are very simple. We should avoid inbreeding. We should increase the genetic diversity. But actually, how we do that in practice is a much more difficult, difficult question. So I don't know if you want to 
kind of uh, jump. You've already predicted my follow-up question. (laughs) (laughs) So how do we, how do we, so, okay, so inbreeding depression is something we need to avoid. We, we want to have the genetic diversity. How do we, uh, you know, how, how can we solve that problem? Yeah. So, um, there are two theories uh, behind what actually causes the inbreeding depression. The first one is based on hybrid Weiger. So we say that if we cross two distinct inbred lines, the offspring is going to perform better. But here I should actually say, because uh, yeah, that, that is quite commonly misinterpreted. Uh, misinterpreted? Yeah, you, you know what I mean. Um, so hybrid Weiger actually means that the offspring is better than the average between the two parents. It doesn't necessarily mean that the offspring is better than either of the parents. So with the classical definition of hybrid Weiger, you could still have a, a purebred line that is performing better than the than the offspring. But okay, let's let's leave that for for for, for one second. The second theory uh, behind inbreeding depression is that we have an accumulation of deleterious alleles. So what I what I described a moment ago. Um, sorry, I should probably say that allele uh, stands for a, a, a gene variant. So we all have two copies of, of genes. If you have two different uh, variants, we, we refer to those as alleles. Uh, now, they might seem like the same thing because uh, in, in both cases, when you have an increase in inbreeding, you see the uh, the inbreeding depression, you, you see the effects uh, on the health, reproduction, and, and, and general longevity of dogs. But actually, the interpretation of what we see and how we are going to address this is going to be quite different. So with hybrid wider, the solution would be simple. Uh, we create purebred lines and we just keep crossing them. Um, but an important point here is that the hybrid wider is the largest if we have the first generation cross. So if we are going to go with this kind of model, uh, that would mean that we do need to keep the purebred lines and actually the more inbred they are, the better, so that we can create the F1 generations continuously. Because if you start crossing the first generation with each other, uh, you're starting to have the hybrid wider. So over time, it becomes less and less and you don't see the effects anymore. And on the other side, if we talk about the deleterious alleles, um, the situation is a bit more complex because if we say that the deleterious alleles are the ones that we want to get rid of, then actually what we want is homozygosity. So we want to have inbred animals, but they should have the healthy allele. So I don't know if you can see, but it is quite different. In one case, we are trying to get animals as diverse as possible. And the other, uh, we are trying to get animals uh, fixed or, or having the same allele, but the, uh, the the healthy version of the allele. And unfortunately, well, unfortunately, the science tells us that uh, at least in animal breeding, uh, the accumulation of, of uh, deleterious alleles theory is actually much more likely to be responsible for the inbreeding depression than the hybrid than hybrid vigor. So when we talk about hybrid Weiger in plants, for example, the effects are very, very obvious and they have been very well studied. So for example, in, in, in maize and um, corn, so for, for American speakers, or I don't know, maybe it's the other way around, uh, the, the level of hybrid Weiger can be as high as 100%. So by crossing two pure lines, the offspring will actually 
exceed the performance of the parental lines by 100%. But uh, when we talk about inbred lines and in, in, in plants, we talk about completely inbred lines. Um, this is a level of inbreeding that we do not achieve generally in, in animals. So uh, compared to that, we have the, the, the highest estimates of hybrid vigor in animals that I could find were in, in livestock and chickens, and they were at 25%. So the level is considerably, considerably lower. Um, and also we have to remember that the hybrid vigor is uh, very trait specific, so it doesn't apply to every single trait. It very much depends on the specific genetic variants that we are talking about. And unfortunately, there is very little, um, well, the, the, there is little uh, science that would study exactly the effects of hybrid vigor in dogs. So we do have studies that compare, for, for example, longevity of mongrels versus longevity of pedigree dogs. But it is, it is a very, very big bag with a lot of uh, issues that we have to kind of address that are outside of the genetic constitution of those populations. So for example, for a lot of, I think that with the modern studies, it's becoming less of, a, of an important uh, factor, but certainly when we talk about studies that were carried out in the 80s, 90s, maybe early 2000, we have to remember that owners of dogs, of, of pedigree dogs, generally had a slightly different approach to, to treatment of their animals than owners of mongrels. Uh, mongrels were, kept as almost livestock. If, if they got sick, they were just either killed or they were left to fend for themselves. Whereas with pedigree dogs, that always has to be bought. Wait, when is this? Sorry? When when was that? So in 80s, 90s, uh, there is a, a fairly, fairly uh, well-documented uh, body of, of research that the oh, really? attitudes to, to mongrels was, was different. Oh, interesting. Uh, to pedigree dogs, yeah. So that will impact on the results that we are seeing because... We will have far less data on on, on mongrels than than on the on the pedigree dogs. Pedigree dogs. I have so many questions, and you you keep keep bringing us into new topics. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's a yeah, it's a very. Interesting Hang on, let me let me ask some questions, yeah. and I, I need to kind of catch up. Um, so when it comes to the uh, obviously, you speak about having like which makes more sense in plants where you can have like these highly inbred animals and then you breed them together and you get the hybrid vigor effect. But in dogs, that doesn't really seem very practical because you're going to have like the individuals are going to really suffer, you know, it whilst you're creating these really inbred animals to then in, like cross together. So sh surely in dogs, it just doesn't really, it doesn't really apply as much. Well, that's or it's not very ethical to go down uh, that road. <laughs> well, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm describing the situation. Uh, if we went, were to maximize the use of hybrid vigor in dogs, this is what we would have to do. And um, whether people would actually do that, that's a, a, a different question. But like for for a breeder, you wouldn't say to them, "Okay, look, we're going to suffer for like three generations. We're just going to inbreed the dogs really harshly." But it's great because when we get to the fourth generation, then we're going to outcross and we're going to get hybrid vigor. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't really say what, you know, what breeders should, should be doing. This is, this is how it would work from the genetic perspective. And this is, this is how it's done in, in, in plants. Obviously, with plants, we have a very different ethical... Well, uh, yeah, with plants, you don't have to worry about yeah. three generations of super inbred animals. Yes. <laughs> uh, but 
this kind of illustrates the point that if we were to say, oh, we want to use uh, hybrid Weiger and dogs, there is a need for the parental lines that will still have to be inbred. So, but you don't have to do that. Like, uh, it doesn't seem to me like you have to do that yourself because we've kind of done it, right? Like already, haven't we? Like accidentally within the breeds, there's they tend to be quite inbred of already like you don't, you don't yeah, need to no, embrace absolutely, it absolutely so uh you you are correct in, in saying that pedigree breeds in general are, are, are well inbred uh but then you have to also ask yourself whether the trait that you're trying to improve is going to be affected by the hybrid viper um, so as, as I kind of mentioned before, uh, hybrid Weiger is not a global thing. It's not going to affect every single trait that you see in dog from, you know, the, the, the cold quality temperament to, to, to the longevity of the dog. There will be some traits that are possibly going to be affected by hybrid Weiger, whereas other traits won't be affected at all. Um, so when, you can get yeah. you can get that hybrid vigor effect, though. Right. Like if you uh, crossed a Labrador with, I don't know, a Beagle, right? Like you're because you have the different genetics, aren't you still going to get hybrid Vigor? But, but that depends which, which theory we are going to follow. If we were going to go with the hybrid Vigor, then in theory, yes. In practice, there is very little documented research that would say that this trait in that particular cross is going to improve as a result. When you mentioned the traits as well, and you mentioned longevity there, um, I don't know if you would call it like hybrid vigor, but there are studies that have come out which say that crossbreeds tend to live longer than pedigree dogs. So they, uh, yes, you are correct. Uh, But again, it very much depends on the population that is being studied. Um, I can't remember now the name of the authors, but a couple of years ago, I believe, Dogs Trust uh, has done a, a really massive project on UK dogs, um, and they actually found that there was no difference, or even I, th- I think that there was no statistical difference uh, between the estimates of longevity between the mongrels and pedigree dogs. I think there was a recent one, wasn't there? Like, and it was um, based on veterinary data. And I, is it? Am I just making this up? Was it called a uh, Vet Compass or something oh, yeah, like the, that? There are studies from. There is a whole big. Yeah, uh, a whole mass of papers coming from from that compass at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I thought one of them was showing a, a difference in longevity. Yeah, so you know this this kind of refers back to the the inbreeding depression is real, but whether this is actually caused by the hybrid Weiger, so across is always better than the pedigree lines, or whether this is accumulation of the deleterious variants, that's a different question. And with the accumulation of the deleterious variants, we're talking about a completely different thing. So uh, here, if you if you talk about uh, accumulation of deleterious variants, technically you don't need to outcross. You just need to make sure that you're selecting for the healthy ones, or for, for, for the healthy variants. Um, so yes, you know the, the longevity in mongrels could be higher as a result of the uh, accumulation of deleterious variants, not just because they are crossbred. Yeah. I don't know. We just spent we spent like ten minutes saying genetic diversity, and now it sounds like you're advocating for inbreeding. No, 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 no. Absolutely <laughs> not. No. Um, I absolutely, yeah. I, I definitely want to say that we should be minimizing inbreeding, inbreeding because it does minimize the risk. 
But we do need to understand that there are some caveats in how we approach this subject um, if we want to actually achieve a, a, a like, meaning. For example, Alison Skipper gave the example on this with Irish setters and getting rid of one of the negative uh yeah, genes that was, that she was talking about yeah yeah totally exactly and like this is a success story of being able to get rid of it actually whilst it doing exactly what you're saying with the with the inbreeding yeah. but um between episodes now i did have an opportunity to look into that and one of the criticisms of that like project was that actually okay we got rid of the eye issue but now we have like a much higher more inbred population of dogs so this this kind of leads to another subject. Oh goodness, it's all so interlinked. It's it, it's really hard to actually you know select which which uh, threads to pick up next. And um, so yes, uh, there is a big risk in focusing on any specific trait, and it really doesn't matter if we are talking about breeding for specific conformation trait, or we are trying to avoid a, a, a specific health condition. Uh, because if we are performing selection, we are reducing the genetic diversity by definition. It's, it's always going to happen. So when we talk about selection against diseases, we are now in a really, really great uh, situation with the availability of DNA testing for a lot of conditions. But it also carries risks uh, because I, I remember, so the first DNA testing for dogs came out in the late 90s. And initially, it, it was such a, 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 a you know revolutionary thing. Everyone that was interested in, in, in dog health was uh, trying to avoid breeding uh, from recessive carriers over recessive conditions. So these dogs would be, but maybe we should uh, explain a little bit. So when we're talking about recessive conditions, an animal has to have two copies of the kind of mutated uh, variant to display the, the uh, condition if they have one copy that is normal and one copy that is a, um, a, a disease variant, they're uh, termed as carriers. So carriers will be healthy themselves, but they can pass this um, disease variant to their offspring. Um, so when the DNA testing first became available and you know people started noticing, oh, actually, you know I've, I've had carriers in my breeding line for a very long time, there was this... Um, well, the over-enthusiasm a little bit with, with removing carriers from breeding because people wanted to, to, to kind of make sure that they are never going to produce that, that disease in the, in the dogs that they breed. But actually this had uh, quite severe consequences on the genetic diversity. So we were focusing on one trait while actually increasing the inbreeding and increasing the risk of all the other issues that are hidden and unknown at this moment, um, so that they can uh, they, they are now increasing in, in, in frequency. So yeah, definitely um, when we are talking about selection for specific issues, we have to be very very careful with how we perform that selection. This reminds me in dog training of the nature versus nurture debate, where people would be like really sit on one side of the aisle and be like you know, it's all about socialization. It's all about how you bring them up. And some people would sit on the aisle of like, no, it's all in the genetics. It's all in how you breed the dogs. And it seems like the consensus now is like, okay, it's actually a mix of the two. Isn't this the case with what you spoke about with the hybrid vigor versus deleterious 
LLs, yeah, yeah. <laughs> try and say that word, where maybe it's, it's like a mix of the two, because with the with the setters, wouldn't it have made sense to, okay, let's breed away from the eye issues. Uh, now we've successfully done that. Let's look to another breed that doesn't have this issue, do an outcross, and then we have, we've kind of like had our cake and ate it in the sense that like we've got rid of the eye issues and we've increased the genetic diversity back into the breed. Wouldn't that make sense? So that is one of the options. Um, there are some caveats related to crossbreeding as well, though. Um, so, yeah, I'm just wondering, okay, let's go there. Let's go there. <laughs> <laughs> so when we talk about crossbreeding, uh, so I, I should start by saying that I don't have a problem with, with uh, crossbreeding um, as long as we know exactly what we want to do and how we are going to achieve that. And that is actually not as easy as may seem. So when we talk about outcrossing to get rid of a specific problem, um, Alison mentioned the uh, low uric acid Dalmatians. Um, so that was a single outcross that was done in the 1970s. Um, so they crossed a, a, a pointer dog with Dalmatians and then they back crossed to, to Dalmatians um, to keep the gene that they wanted from the pointer. Um, while retaining the type and, and, and visual appearance of a, of a Dalmatian. And those guys were actually really, really lucky. Uh, first of all, they had the trait that they could quite easily measure. Um, so they, even though the DNA tests were not available at that time, uh, the um, uric acid in urine could be measured on, on, on the dogs that they, they were breeding from. Um, and even though Technically, the, the condition that they were trying to breed against, which is hyperuricosuria, is termed as a recessive condition. So a dog has to have two copies to develop problems. So basically, a dog is producing uh, stones in urine that can lead to, to blockages of the bladder. Uh, even in carrier dogs, you can see some fine differences in the uric acid concentration. So they'll never be clinically affected. But if you look at them carefully, if you measure the urine, uh, uric acid concentration in urine, you can detect which dogs are carriers. So from that perspective, it was much easier for them to identify which dogs should be bred from. But secondly, they were very lucky to avoid what we call a popular sire syndrome. So, oh, I wanted to get to this. Yeah. But yeah. actually, before we go down that rabbit hole, because I know that's a rabbit hole, and it's actually one I want to get to. Yeah. But um, before we go down that, I was just with the Irish setters. I wasn't saying that you need to outcross to solve the issue. Like, it sounds like what they did was made total sense to to breed away from the LL. I'm just saying once, or breed away from the eye issue, sorry. Once they've done that, though, and they've accomplished that, and now they're left with these Irish setters that don't have the issue but do have uh, a high level of inbreeding, at that point, can't we then do crossbreeds just to increase genetic diversity? Not to breed away from anything, just to get some genetic diversity back into the breed. So, yeah, they, they could. Any, any breed could. Um, any population can. Um, however, the problem with crossbreeding is that it has to be done in a very... Unless you're very lucky, uh, you have to have a re very good plan on how you're going to do that. Um, so there, there is a study actually done on dogs, which shows that if you just outcross one one time, that is pretty much pointless, uh, because over time the uh, the influence of, of that single dog that you're introducing to, to your uh, breeding pool is going to be diluted, and within very few generations you are back to where you started from. 
So what you really need to do is you need to have a continuous, very low levels of outcrossing from different sources. And now the problem with that is that it requires an overall management of the breed population as a whole. And when I'm talking about management, I'm talking about actually someone going out and saying, you will breed this dog with this dog and you will breed this dog with this dog, which is very, very difficult because it's, it places a lot of power in, 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 in hands of one person or one, one group. Um, and the, the rest of the breed population saying that, yeah, we are going to follow with, with that. So I'm not saying that it shouldn't be done. No, no, absolutely. If, if you can get, you know, uh, a, a breed like, community to, to work together like that. But politics aside, I'm not talking about like, like this is a hypothetical. I'm not talking about, you know, like just politics completely aside. Wouldn't it make sense then if you want to create genetic diversity within a breed to do as you said, to do regular outcrossing. So, uh, you know, just to, just to like have a more like a slow flow of new diversity coming into the breed all of the time. Um, and, oh, it's really hard. To, we start going down rabbit holes and really conscious. <laughs> we get to, I'm thinking of phenotyping now. We'll get to that in a minute, but like, wouldn't that make sense to, to, just just be doing it on a slow so yes if this is the way that you would like to do that then yes it's it's one of the options uh in, in which you can kind of manage genetic diversity and you can still maintain type right like you, you don't well, have that's, to that's that's what i was going to get to um because uh, so when we talk about introducing genetic diversity ideally we want to introduce something that is very very distant to the breed that you have. If you're choosing something that is very different, it's going to be different by definition. Um, so you are going to lose a little bit of time. But it's surprising, isn't it, how quick you can get the type back? That's always been one of the big surprises. A lot of people are talking about that based on the example of the Schnauzer and uh, what was that, the Pincher uh, study that was done in... in there was, was more than one, way. though, that's... Um, obviously you mentioned Dalmatians, but there was also, um, boxers and, uh, yeah. was it cor Corgis? Was it Corgis? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. It was the Bobtail. Um, uh, it, it was yeah. the in introduction of the Bobtail gene. It always surprises people how quickly you can get back to type. And, and that was with a really extreme example of the bo boxers and the Corgis. I mean, they're really different breeds. Whereas if you were breeding like boxers and I don't know, uh, like, I don't know, so maybe more of like a Mastiff type dog. It would probably be even quicker, right? Yes, but you have to remember that as soon as you start selecting for type, you are reducing genetic diversity again. Because you are selecting the variants that you want that are kind of typical for, for your original breed. So by definition, you're removing the variants that were introduced from the other breed. Okay, let's. we need to like run this out. Okay, let's say I have like <laughs> a... Uh, I breed a Boxer and a Mastiff, right? So on the second generation, I have Boxer Cross Mastiff. Yeah. And then and then I would want to choose the individual that looked... Let's say I want to create a Boxer that looks most like a, a Boxer. I want to choose that individual and I want to breed them to a Boxer. Yeah. Right? So then on my third generation, maybe I have a dog that looks very Boxer-like. And yeah. then they're kind of in the more of the more... They're just more into the gene pool then, aren't they? 
think, fingers crossed they get phenotyped. I like the <laughs> um, So yeah, I think that a lot of people when we talk about outcrossing refer to the uh, the rules that are in, in in livestock, where after three or four generations you introduce the dog uh, the dogs, you introduce a, a, a outcross animal animal back to the, uh, the the breed books. Let's call it. And this is actually what we do at the Kennel Club as well. Uh, but this is based on the fact that in every generation of back crossing to the original breed, you're having the, uh, the, the um, what's the word? The new genetics. Uh, yes, yes, you are. So that's, and that's why you need like a gradual yeah. tap, right? Like it needs to be, it, you can't just do it once, which was what your point was, right? You yes. have to be doing it regularly but then when you start breeding animals that have been outcrossed in, in in the past you know even if they are coming from two different lineages then you are increasing the proportion of the of the influence of the other breed and you are suffering slightly on the type right when we when we talked to when we talked about the bobtail and boxers uh the schnauzer pincher lua dalmatians they were all classical back crossing uh, exercises, let's call them, when you were just back across to the original breed and you were, well, in, in, definitely in the case of bobtails and, and Lua Dalmatians, you were specifically looking for introducing just one gene. Yeah. So you wanted to keep that one gene, but everything else that you wanted was supposed to be like in the previous breed, uh, like in the original breed. When you're talking about uh, increasing genetic diversity, you're trying to keep as many novel gene variants as possible in because that's the goal right you want to increase the genetic diversity so it's much 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 harder to keep the genetic diversity high while you're simultaneously selecting for the type that was present in the in the original breed now i'm not saying that this is bad um you know in in some cases maybe this is the question that people need to answer answer themselves is the type actually sustainable or should we change the type? Now, I'm not the person to answer this well, question. Well, it's not necessarily like changing the type because you're not talking about having, a, you're not talking about doing away with breed standards or anything like that. It's really just accepting the fact that there's going to be more variants within the breed. You know, they're all not going to look like clones of each other. There is going to be a little bit more variance. You're still going to have like your boxer, but maybe individual boxes look look slightly more different than they do do already, right? Like, you, you don't have to, like, totally get to the point where boxes just look like anything, you know, they look like poodles, and, like, you can you can still have a degree of type, but it just has to be a little bit more varied, right? Well, yes, this is one, one aspect of this question. Um, certainly, you know, um, in some breeds, we have far more variability than in others. Um, but I would also... <sighs> So this is a little bit anecdotal because there is uh, not that much data available just yet on the on the genes that are uh, determining the the, the uh, behavior and temperament traits. Uh, but when we talk about predictability of the of the breeds, um, especially when we talk about color of the dog, that is that simple. There isn't that many genes that we are actually talking about. And uh, for majority of those genes, actually, you can do the DNA testing nowadays. So getting the dog that will have the same color, coat length, um, that's easy. That, that really is easy to refer back to the type. Um, when it comes to the size, again, okay, it, it is a little bit more complex because uh, the, the, the body size is treated as a polygenic trait. So we have multiple genes that are affecting that. 
Um, but we have a few genes like IGF, for example, uh, insulin growth uh, factor, which has a large impact on, on the dog's size. Um, so again, with the size, you can get it fairly, fairly, uh, fairly quickly. Um, but what about impairment? You know, for, from my perspective, I, I really like the predictability of the temperament in, in pedigree dogs. And there is variation. Of course, there is variation. And, and variation partly determined by the uh, the, the environment that oh. grew up and the, the training they received and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is also genetic uh, genetic differences uh, within a breed. But we do know that if you if you get yourself a German Shepherd, you are expecting slightly different behavioural traits from him than well, I would Cavalier argue. Charles. Right? Okay, but let's let's talk. So even in the closed population, like we've spoken a lot about Labradors today. You're going to expect a different uh, temperament in the uh, the working Labradors versus the pet Labradors, right? So, so there is there are temperament variations even within the closed population. But you know what? I was just thinking as you were saying this, this has kind of already been done. Like because for forever we've had Jack Russells that haven't been in a closed population. But if you see a Jack Russell on the street, you can say it's a Jack Russell. But we accept that there's more variability in Jack Russell's than there is in like, uh, name a breed, you know, like any other breeds, there is more variability, but we still say it's a Jack Russell. Like we still identify a Jack Russell. And I would say that the temperament is not that wildly different. Like you can still like make generalisms about Jack Russell temperaments. Well, I, I wouldn't want to say too much about that. I don't know that many Jack Russell's I have to say. So, uh, yeah. Um, no, you know, it, it is possible. It is it is an option. Uh, but I think that uh, people have to be very, very um, realistic about the challenges that lay ahead and they have to be planned. Otherwise, it's, it's kind of like with the DNA testing. You know, there is the crossbreeding uh, idea. So let's go out and crossbreed dogs. But then we don't have any plan. We don't know what we're going to, to improve. We're, we, we don't really know exactly how we're going to measure that. And it just becomes a big mess. We lose the predictability of, of pedigree breeds. And within a few generations, we are back to where we started. Actually, I think that maybe my breed is a good example here. Um, so Russian Black Terriers is, uh, Black Terrier, uh, is a new breed. Um, they were created in the 50s. And so we just have 70 years of breeding. Um, and they were created from three uh, base breeds, um, Giant Schnauzers, Rottweilers, and Airedale Terriers. That's going back to, again, Alison's uh, podcast, you were talking about Airedales not being a typical working breed, but uh, apparently they were at the time because, yeah. The yeah, they were family. at one point in yeah. the war. Yeah, they were, our, they were our chosen breed. Yeah, absolutely. Before we got German Shepherds and <laughs> realized how superior they were. <laughs> So we had the three base breeds, but then on top of that, we had uh, a number of crosses and a number of dogs that were just good working dogs that were in, in the military kennels, but actually their uh, their origins were un- undocumented. So you started from the perfect combination of, of, you know, diverse breeds that we're putting together to create a new, new breed. Um, but now few well, let's say 20, 30 generations later, um, I recently did embark on, on, on one of my dogs and his uh, genetic COI is 29%. And this is because over that time we were performing selection, quite stringent selection. 
Uh, so yeah, we started great, but then selection reduced that genetic diversity to, to, to levels that are comparable to some of the pedigree breeds that have been closed, you know, closed populations for a very, very long time. See, I see that. That makes me cringe when I see these, uh, oh, the, when I see the genetic COI scores are just like dreadful, you know, sometimes I feel like the, the pedigree COIs like kind of hide the truth a little bit in, ter so, in terms yeah, of you, okay. you can have like a, a low uh, pedigree coi but actually when you do the genetic coi on on embark it's just like insane you know um so the the first thing that we need to remember when we're comparing genetic coi to pedigree based coi is that they actually compare they they address different questions okay so there will always be a difference between them and by definition the genetic coi typically will be higher than the pedigree based coi and this is because with the genetic COI, you're looking at the biochemical pro properties of the variants that you have, whereas in pedigree-based COI, uh, COI coefficients of inbreeding, um, you calculate the probability uh, that genes are coming from the common ancestor, but you have a base population of the breed founders uh, where you assume that they were all carrying distinct genetic variants. Um, so even if biochemically they were the same. So technically, you know, on paper, you could say that, oh yeah, so the genetic COI is definitely better. But actually what we know, so this is going back a little bit to the effective population size. What a number of studies across various different species, uh, including, you know, experimental lines in mice that have been, you know, very highly inbred for a very long time, shows that the overall level of inbreeding is actually less important than the speed with which that inbreeding has been accumulated. So if you have a breed that has, let's say, genetic COI of, of 15%, but that breed has been closed for, let's say, 200 years, which is you know unrealistic, let's say 100 years, um, but then you have another breed that has a, the same exact genetic COI of, what did I say, 15%, but that COI has been accumulated over five generations, then that second breed is going to be in much at a much higher risk of suffering from inbreeding depression. And this is because um, when we talk about, uh, well, inbreeding and deleterious and, and, uh, alleles specifically, um, there is something called purging selection. Um, so deleterious alleles will be weakly or strongly, but they will be selected against uh, through natural selection. And um, there is also the random drift that is a, a random loss of, of genetic variants that will happen in every generation. So multiple studies have shown that if you have a common ancestor that was born, you know, to 300 years ago, then the likelihood of you inheriting the deleterious allele from that ancestor is extremely low versus when you look at your grandfather, for example, if, if, if you were going to breed uh, half-sips together, the, 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 the probability that they will get a deleterious allele from their recent ancestor is much, much, much higher. So we are looking at different things with genetic COI and pedigree-based COI. Um, the, the, there are you know, benefits and drawbacks to each method. Um, obviously, the, the main benefit of the genetic COI is that you're actually looking at the dog that you have in front of you, uh, whereas with pedigree-based COI, uh, we are talking about the average for the classes of relatives. So when you talk about um, 
let's say, breeding half, uh, full sips together, their offspring on average will, will share 25% of genes, um, but actually you can get anywhere from 1% to 99%. Um, and in pedigree-based COI, we're just going to say this is the average. Well, this is... With genetic COI, you will actually say that, no, this this half, the, the, this puppy has the uh, genetic COI of 12%, this one has 67 So it's yeah. much more individually based. The drawback is that um, you have to have the DNA data on all the dogs to actually get this sort of information with pedigree just the pedigree is enough to, to calculate. No, I'm not saying we do away with the pedigree one. I, I make sense. I understand that. But it's just, uh, it doesn't tell you the whole story. But like what you were saying there about the, the your dog has a 29% COI, and that's actually not unusual, like across loads of breeds. That's really common. But it's kind of hard to like, as someone that, you know, isn't a geneticist, that's, that's a little, that's kind of hard to stomach because as you just said, if you breed siblings together, then they only have 25% or they, that would be the average. Like, so, so to have a higher percentage of inbreeding um, than you would get from breeding siblings together in a breed and for that to be normal, that's, that's, well, that's a bit rough. Yes, but again, we are, we are kind of comparing the genetic COI with the pedigree-based one. So with the pedigree-based one, you get the 25%. Uh, with genetic COI, it's, it's going to be higher. Because well, let's well, what would you get if you bred siblings together on a genetic COI? That would be twenty five percent. No, no, it would, be, it would be higher. It would be higher. Because oh, for example, oh, what would it be then? You will have genes of, you know, let's let's talk about the the, the coat color, which is a simple one. So all the Russian terriers will be homozygous for, well, you know, typically all <laughs> uh, will be homozygous for at least two genes. Mm-hmm. So in that case, we are already adding the genes that will be the same in the full siblings, aside from the fact that they are full siblings. Do you know off the top of your head what the average would be? For for the uh, Russian terriers, sibling, no sibling. uh... No, I I couldn't tell you that. I really couldn't tell you that because it will depend on the homogeneity of, of the breed as a whole. Oh, okay, because obviously you said about the 25%. I thought that was just an average. So that would be an average based on the pedigree-based correlation, uh, for, uh, coefficient, sorry. Um, but this is assuming that the you know the ancestors of these dogs were unrelated and so on. So this is uh, the average based on the, on the number of assumptions. With genetic COI, we would have to know what is the actual number of genes that all the dogs within the breed. Even okay, okay, that's fair enough. But also, even on the pedigree COIs for a lot of breeds, you are talking about higher percentages. Like, well, you know, they, over over ten is not that unusual, is it? You know, you you can get like you can see dogs have twelve percent, and you know, like these these things happen very regularly. I, I what's the average pedigree? Do you know the average pedigree COI? Yeah, or? so it depends for, for which breed you, you, you are talking about. Uh, for the Russian Terriers, I actually would not want to give you the, the number just because uh, we have a huge number of imports in this breed. And for imports, we have a limited depth of pedigree. So the COI in breeds where we have a lot of imports is, is going to be lower than it should be uh, just because of the you know data limitations that we have. Uh, with Labradors, uh, I actually did look at that. Um, let me find it. Uh, so uh, when we we have uh, COI um, 
for all the breeds uh, on, on our website. So if you have a, a dog of a specific breed, you can enter that in the, what we call health test result finder. And there you will see all the health test results for that dog, but then you'll also see the inbreeding coefficient of this dog compared to the breed average. And the breed average that we show on the website is the breed average of the dogs that were born in the preceding year. Because, you know, it, it, when you try to talk about comparing dogs to, to, to other dogs, you really want to compare them to the contemporaries that are alive now, not the dogs that lived, you know, 20 years ago, because what's, what's the point? Um, so for the Labrador Retrievers that were born, I believe it was in 2021, uh, the average was 6%. What's that like? Uh, the equivalent of in humans? So it's less than first cousins. I can't remember now. Sorry, I would have to. I'd have to have a look at that. Yeah, yeah. it's um, quite. It's but, quite high, isn't it? No, I, I. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. I would say you wouldn't say that's high. No. Well, what we really, what I really want to kind of drive home is that the overall inbreeding levels that we see uh, are not as important as the rates of inbreeding. We really shouldn't be hanging up on the on the what's the average in breeding in, in, in that population. Um, so, and with this one, we do have some encouraging uh, results. Um, so, a few years ago, my my predecessor Tom uh, Tom Lewis uh, published a paper which looked at the breeding rates in all the breeds uh, in the Kennel Club uh, database. And um, it was really quite interesting because we, we definitely saw that inbreeding rates were high in the 90s, but they have been increasing, uh, decreasing sorry, since 2000. So we are seeing an improvement in the understanding of the importance of the genetic diversity. Uh, breeders are trying to select uh, dogs that are less uh, related to each it's other. I know that a lot of breeders are trying to do that. Breeders are usually trying to do the best thing, aren't they? But uh, it's quite hard to do in a, in a closed system. And I know we're getting to the phenotyping in a minute. Do, do you think that there is an issue with genetic diversity in pedigree dogs? Yes, yes definitely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a, a quick answer. Um, but I think that the answer to this question is much more complicated than saying let's outcross. That will solve all the issues. So let's let's go on to the phenotyping because I didn't actually know this. This is actually a really positive thing for the kennel club, and I didn't even realize that this was available until you messaged me. Um, phenotyping is something that I'm a, a really big fan of because I think that it does an enable like you to have more of an open um, registry, get new dogs in, get more genetic diversity. Um, but it does seem to be something that like hardly anyone knows about. I don't know if you if you know this how how much that system is actually used within the kennel club. You know. So yeah, unfortunately, I don't have any statistics to share with you on this one because I don't actually deal uh, with with this department. Um, I think that you are right in in, in saying that it's not uh, widely used. Um, and there are some, so this is where we are getting a little closer to the politics side of things. Um, I think that uh, the, there are two ways in which this could be seen as, as, as a way of increasing the genetic diversity. The first one is what we've discussed before, um, is the introduction of the uh, genetic diversity from unknown souls, um, but within the same breed. 
Um, so let's say if if we talk about um, dogs, like I think that that's that's what happened in in, in the Spanish mastiffs. Um, you know, they 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 had a breed register for for quite some time, but then you know if someone went into the Spanish mountains and saw a dog that phenotypically resembled a mastiff, they would say, oh, you know what, let's let's add this one. Um, so that would be a, a really useful way of introducing the genetic diversity or, or, or expanding the genetic diversity. Um, and the majority of the breeds that we have nowadays, I think that this would be fairly uh, of, of fairly limited use because there are few populations like that. You know, we don't have a population somewhere in the, in the in the mountains for for let's say Labrador retrievers that have been bred completely separate from everyone else for for a very very long time. And in most cases, likely these dogs are related to the dogs that we already have in the pedigree. It's just that at some point someone didn't do the papers. Um, so that's one thing. The the other thing that I, I imagine you are kind of alluding to is running an outcross program, uh, getting the dog to, to a stage where it looks like a dog of a certain breed, and then introducing that to the, the, the breed population. And here, so I, I am a geneticist at the Kennel Club, and I de deal strictly with, with genetics, but... Um, we do have to acknowledge that um, the management of the breed population is dependent on, on the choices of breeders. So let's say that you have decided that, okay, I'm going to do a little outcrossing on the side. People will know about that. And if you don't have the support of the breed community, those dogs will be ostracized. Basically, the, the breed community will decide, oh, we don't want to use these dogs because we know that you did outcrossing. And in that situation, you, you get to a, a basically division, subdivision of the population, which can be even more harmful. Uh, because, yeah, you will have your little population of dogs that you have increased the genetic diversity in. But in effect, none of the other breeders will want to, uh, will, will give you their dogs for use in breeding because, you know, politics. Uh, and they won't be using your dogs because they don't like that either. So if you were to address the genetic diversity through that, I would cert certainly recommend that you do that with the knowledge of the breed community and as part of the kind of common efforts. Um, because unfortunately, you when we talk about genetic diversity of a breed, it's not a one-person thing. It has to be the whole community that works together on that. I agree. I don't think anyone... I don't even think there's a need to like hide it because within the phenotyping system like it's permitted essentially um, but as you said it needs to be embraced by the breed community in order for that to actually have a, like a wider effect definitely um, definitely so but there's nothing there's no reason to hide it it's not like like sometimes i've seen discussions on facebook where people be like oh that's paper hanging you know where like you're presenting a dog as being something they're not and it's not not actually like that's a misunderstanding because actually the phenotyping system is very open it's very like honest about like you know what it is um it's but it needs to be embraced essentially so the so the tool is the kennel club has provided the tool right it's just like people need to use it so the, you know there the, the are different levels of being secretive about a, a project like this you could do that completely behind closed doors and pretend that everything is fine and yeah, I think that we, we all have seen, you know, Meryl suddenly appear in breeds where it was never seen before. And, you know, apparently all the dogs are of the same breed. And it's like, well, no, that 
it's not possible. Um, then you can have people that will do ad crossing and will talk about that, but they will not seek the formal approval, uh, which I think come, uh, happens. That's the paper. Yeah. Huh? Um, and then you have an official official um, project, let's say. So Alison mentioned already uh, Leogen project, which which I'm, I'm really quite impressed uh, with. Um, so they have a group of uh, a whole community of people across the whole world that are working together on developing a, an ad crossing project and where they have very clearly defined goals. They know which methods they are going to use. They have a, a backup of a geneticist uh, or at least one geneticist. Um, and they have the support of the breed community that was that is actually you know written in the letter. Um, they have the support of of the breed clubs across the world, and with you know with the project plan and with the uh, paperwork. When when you have that sort of evidence together, um, and you submit that to the kennel club, I think that this will be seen very very differently than you you know publicly on Facebook saying, oh, I crossed, you know, uh, my Russian terrier with, with Airedale, let's say, a completely random thing, but uh, but not actually, you know, going the, the, the extra mile to, to gather all the supporting documents. It's still quite, quite different. I don't know. I think this is, sometimes I feel like uh, this is where people can get frustrated with the Kennel Club because people that have the view that I do like that actually we need more genetic diversity we need like radical change essentially um can get frustrated by the kennel clubs like like um like lack of desire to get involved in the sense of like uh you know as you said then you need the support of the breed community unfortunately with a lot of these breed communities like they are very radical in their like views of like it, the dogs need to be a hundred percent pure. You can never outcross. It's disgusting to outcross. Uh, like these really outdated views, and I think this is where people get frustrated because because it's like, oh well, if that's what the breed community decides, like if the if the Frenchy community decides to breed their dogs with the inability to breathe, well, that's their, just their decision. Like they can do what they want. It's like no, 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 no. Like the kennel club needs to put their foot down. Like you can't you can't just abdicate abdicate responsibility to the breeders to just do what they want like no no there's a role to play here and at a certain point you have to say no no, no that, that you can't do that like that enough is enough we need to do outcrossing we need to fix the issues in the breed like here's here's a point joanna and i only got sent this yesterday and uh it was quite frustrating like in the german shepherd breeders i've spoke about it to death there's massive issues with with the backs of the dogs Someone sent me a thing yes, uh, yesterday. It was a post from the Crops page from 2016 banning stacking in the show ring for German Shepherds. I didn't know this had happened. I don't think, like, hardly anyone knows this has happened. They actually made an announcement on their Facebook page and said, no more stacking in the show ring. And this just seems to have got, like, completely forgotten that the Kennel Club actually made this decision. They're running Crops. Why don't you just go... No, like what like this is a like what like you've made this decision and you're just not enforcing it at all and this is so this is like where people get frustrated like the abdication of responsibility to the breed group to the complete detriment of dogs and it's kind of like leaving all the responsibility on the on their on on the breed uh group 
um, instead of actually, you know, making unpopular decisions for the good of dogs. Well, that's, that's my dog rant. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I think that this is where I'll pull my wild card up. I'm just a geneticist, not the kennel club spokesperson. No, in, in reality, I, I don't really have much to do with the breed standards and, and you know, things like uh, what is allowed in the show ring or, or not. This is completely beyond my, my remit. No, um, I know it is, but I uh, have to, I can't not have a rant if we're on this topic. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I can completely understand. We all have very strong feelings about certain subjects. Um, the one thing that I think that, especially given you know the, the background of your podcast and, and uh, having the kind of evolution of, of attitudes to different training methods, I think that we can apply the same thing to changing behavior and, and, and breeding circles. Um, just think to yourself about coercion and how effective coercion is in training and this exact same thing applies to changing behavior of people so yeah but this is like this is i just don't think this holds up when it comes to this issue where people it's like the breeding of some of these breeds is like pure neglect you know it'd be kind of like saying well you know instead of making animal neglect a, a legislation because that's forcing people not to neglect their animals people should just do it because we're going to give them positive reinforcement for it so like, no 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 like it needs to be illegal no, no, as well. i don't think that it's as simple as that it, it's not about us just waiting for people to, to do the right thing and, and then saying oh yeah you know you, you did a good job um it's more about being open to conversation and gradually providing enough education and and materials for people to actually genuinely change the way they view things rather than saying you can't do that otherwise we'll do what like yeah but how long do we have how long do we have to wait joanna like you know in the meantime dogs are being born that are just i mean you know german shepherds is one thing i think is dreadful whatever frenchies pugs and stuff is obvious it's like this you can't even like you, you you know, it's just so obvious. And, in the, you know, it's nice to go the nice and nice approach, kind of get people on board slowly. But at a certain point, you have to say, do you know what? Animals are suffering in the meantime. We we, we don't have time. Like, we can't allow people to gradually come around. In the meantime, they're breeding animals that can't even breathe. Like, no, no, no. We had to kind of have to put our foot down. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, this is getting into the region that I didn't really want to discuss, but let's try it. Uh, so, okay, let's say that Camel Club comes out today and says you can no longer breed French Bulldogs and, and, and Pugs and English Bulldogs. What do you think is going to happen to the people that actually own these dogs and breed those dogs at this time? This is happening in Scandinavia, though. This isn't, yes. like, unprecedented. Well, I I would say that this has the the rules have just been applied in Scandinavia. We don't know exactly what will be outcome of these rules. Okay, what I'm asking, no, you, what you're talking about is the kennel club. You are asking for the kennel club to provide a, a very you know clear stance on on what should be done or not. Not what I'm asking is what do you think the effect will be. For those dogs going into the future. Well, you're you're suggesting that people just won't breed within the kennel club. I'm guessing that's what you're saying. Yeah. Well, sometimes there is a. Sometimes you have to take the moral high ground. You know, when you have such a situation like that, 
you, you know, you can, you can, if the kennel club said, no, we're no longer going to register dogs that have a muzzle length shorter than this, or, you know, that aren't Boas, or whatever, I don't know. And in the meantime, we're going to allow, we're going to be really open about allowing uh, crossbreeding because we know that this is unrealistic to make massive differences within a closed gene pool over a short period of time. Um, if the people that didn't want to get involved with that, like, I'm I, like, I'm sorry, like, this is for the good of the dogs. Like, you, Yeah, but that's, but that's the thing. It's not really going to be making as much effort. In fact, sorry, let me say that again. I don't think that it will have as much of an effect as you think it will. So um, just think about um, exotic bullies and XL bullies. That's outside of the kennel club. They think that they are doing well. Well, the exotic bullies aren't doing well in this country. Yeah. <laughs> it's so, not a thing in this yeah, country. I don't really know that much about the, the, the organization behind them, but I think that we have all seen the very extreme examples. So You know, um, you want to, if you want to talk about, like, I, I don't think bullies are doing well. <laughs> I don't think bullies are doing well in this country. Let's, yeah. uh, but you know what? That, that kind of illustrates the point. The, the fact that something is not going to be uh, approved by the kennel club does not mean that it's going to cease to exist. And no, I understand we, that, but you push it to the fringes. About, you know, when we talk about the breed standards and, and um, specifically French bulldogs, that's that's an interesting one because um, there is a lot of uh, a lot of talk about oh, you know, the breed standards are responsible for all the damage that we see. And yeah, in the past, definitely. But I think that we have to, from one side, acknowledge the errors of our past, but then also realistically look at the situation that we are facing right now. And the the reality is that more than half of the kennel crop registered uh, Frenchies are not bred to standard in a very obvious way. They have the color that is not breed standard. So these dogs would never be placed in the show ring. So how important really is the breed standard to the 50,000 French Bulldogs? That yeah, but then you go, you go to Crofts and those dogs are awarded that that clearly shouldn't be awarded, you know, and it's all over the press and blah, blah, blah. But let's, we disagree on this or, or whatever. We can't, <laughs> no, I, don't think, this is... I don't think that we completely disagree on this. I, I just think that um, the solution is to change the behavior of people and to actually achieve a change in behavior is not easy. Well, a perfect example, when we talked about closed stud books and, and you know, how crossbreeding and, and, and allowing new genetic material would be, you know, all that we need to, to, to increase the genetic diversity. I think that I've mentioned to you uh, before a paper done on Australian Kelpies. Oh, sorry, I can't remember whether it was Australian or New Zealand. Uh, well, a population, I mean. Um, but these dogs are, are working dogs, you know, a typical working dog, nothing to do with showing, nothing to do with, you know, fancy uh, registration papers, and they actually have an open registry. So in theory, the genetic diversity in this breed should be great, but it's not because they have a heavy usage of popular sires. So this mm. clearly shows that, oh, yes, this is that a... we are dealing with a close population yes. is secondary to the breeder behavior. So Now, I really wanted to talk about this. This was another uh, rabbit hole we meant to go down and we haven't yet. The popular sire syndrome, this I basically, it's... You know, it is what it sounds like, right? You know, you have a sire that is really popular. People breed that dog like a ridiculous amount. And then you start losing genetic diversity. Um, 
this is actually like a big problem, I think, within the sports dog world as well. You know, like I think as like sports dog people, hey, I'm putting myself in that camp, which is kind of funny because I'm kind of new to this. Like, um, we it's really easy for us to just blame the show ring on every, everything on the show ring, right? But actually, this problem doesn't just exist in the show ring. There are in the working dog world in agility and IGP and all, all of this stuff, people, you know, a dog will win a championship or will do really well in its performance and everyone wants to breed that dog, mm. which I understand because you want that dog's genetics and everyone wants to have the most successful dogs. But what problems does that cause? Can we can we have our cake and eat it on this one? Can we do that, but then also avoid the issue? Like, you know, what, what what's the best way to go forward? Yeah, you're absolutely, absolutely right. And I have to say that when I first started working at the Kennel Club, my, my impression was similar to yours that, you know, oh, the show ring, the popular sires, you know, the winners of crafts and so on. But then when I actually started looking at pedigree, I've noticed that no, the problem is much more widespread. Um, so uh, the definition of a popular sire is a, uh, an, an, well, typically it is a sire because of the biological limits on the female side. Um, so a, a, a sire that will sire up, well, that will produce a, a, a proportionally large number of offspring. And so this is a problem for several reasons. So first of all, we've talked about every individual having uh, new, new, completely new mutations. Um, so the more offspring the sire has, the more chances uh, there are that he will pass this new mutation to, to, to the next generation. Secondly, he will pass all the deleterious mutations of his ancestors um, to, to the next generation as well. And he's basically going to spread it throughout the population. And thirdly, obviously, you know, the, the more offspring one sire produces, the more individuals in the next generation are going to be related to each other. So it will take less and less time until you reach a point where I have to breed if I'm within the close population paradigm. Um, I will have to breed animals that are related to each other because I don't have any other choice. So um, without a doubt, popular sires are, are definitely the cause of the accumulation of the deleterious alleles that has been studied over and over in, 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 in dog breeds. So yes, definitely this is something that we should avoid at all, all costs. And um, one of the kind of slightly annoying thing is that sometimes people will say, okay, you know, this dog has been used quite a lot, so I'm not going to use him anymore, but I'm going to use his brother or his son. And okay, it is marginally better, but actually it's not that much better at all because you are still breeding from, from animals that are related to that popular sire. So the same issues will, will, will be perpetuated going, going forward. Uh, it is a completely understandable uh, desire. Um, and well, I should maybe add, so we talked about the popular sires being show winners or, or uh, competition winners on the active side. Um, but in the early days of DNA testing, we actually saw some dogs that became popular sires just because they were what we call DNA all clear. So they didn't carry uh, any of the known health conditions. Uh, which, you know, from, from, from the point of view of those health conditions, that's great. But that doesn't change the fact that you're still reducing the genetic diversity. You're focusing on what you know, and you're increasing the risk of the unknowns. So um, unfortunately, we do have to take into account what is happening in the breed. So this is where, unfortunately, if, if we want to breed wisely, 
we do need to spend some time looking at what other people are doing, what has been done in the breeds in the past. So it's not enough to find a sire that will match the bitch that you have. You will have to see whether this sire has been used extensively or whether he's related to, 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 uh, to other popular sires that have been used in the, in the breed. Now, sometimes you will have to make difficult choices. Um, so for example, if you have a popular sire that is clear from a, from, from a specific uh, debilitating condition, um, and well, you, you definitely want to breed within the closed breeding, uh, within the closed population, you don't want to add cross. Sometimes you will have to breed from a sire that was maybe a carrier of, of, of a condition um, to avoid a popular sire. But these are the kind of balances that you will have to make in all kind of aspects of breeding. So uh, yeah, definitely, definitely popular sires are a big issue and, and we need to um, talk about that. Yeah. For people that are breeding for performance, how should they kind of make their breeding decisions based on that? Because if I'm just, let's say I'm just breeding purely for performance, I just want to have the dog that does the best at the sport. Now from from an uneducated standpoint, it's like, okay, well, that I'm just going to go breed the dog that wins loads of stuff. Um, but obviously with what you've just said, that might not be the best idea. What, what, how can I make my breeding decisions? Do I choose dogs that have been bred less often, but are still performing really highly? Or like, how, how do I, I don't know, how do I make a decision? Well, I think that the very important thing is for you to, to first of all, specify what exactly is it in the working performance of the dog that you value? So, well, I hope that you're not just hoping to, to breed a, a, a winning dog, because let's let's face it, winning is, is a, 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 an effect of a lot of variables. But for example, let's say that you are looking for a dog that has a, a really fast retrieve. I don't know, I'm just pulling out of, of my head something that is a big issue for me with my dogs. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, look at specific traits. What is it that makes this particular dog so great? Don't look at the show results. Uh, look at the behaviors of the dog. Look at the traits of, of the dog. And then try to objectively assess whether you can see those same traits in, in, in other dogs. Maybe you will have to compromise on one of those traits if, if really the, the, the top winning dog is the best in everything, not just because, you know, he, he's been to a lot of shows, but because he's generally the best. Uh, so maybe sometimes you will have to make a, a, a compromise and, and maybe choose a, a, a male dog that is not as perfect in some of the aspects. But maybe in the next generation of your breeding, if you're hoping for, you know, a, a, a breeding program, this is where you can, um, I'm losing the words, uh, you can uh, uh, choose another sire that will have that characteristic that you were miss missing before. So think of the of the long run game. You know, it, it's so, this, extremely I, unlikely to breed the, the top winning dog in any discipline within one generation anyway. So think gradually, be very clear on what are the traits that you want to achieve in your breeding and select dogs that will possess this, but taking into account all the other aspects such as genetic diversity, and obviously, 
IGP is actually a really nice example for this because you have the obedience side of things, uh, you have the tracking side of things, and you have the protection. So let's say I have a dog that's really good at obedience and tracking, but maybe not so good at protection. Would I want to breed to a dog that has really good protection, but maybe they're not so good at obedience um, and tracking? Or would I be better off breeding to a dog that's kind of middle of the road on all of them? Well... This is a, 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 a difficult question. Um, and what I would actually do is I would look at the relatives of, of the dogs that you're considering. Uh, especially that, you know, when I talk about traits, I, I mean like tiny, tiny details of, you know, this dog is, is jumping off the right foot or, or left foot, whatever, not, you know, performance and obedience ring, because this is, this is a huge bag of traits that you have to have. Um, on top of which you have to have the handler skills as well. I did a little bit of IGB training with, with, with my dog and I absolutely hated tracking. So yeah, my dog was pretty crap at it, <laughs> but it's probably not because she was bad genetically. It's just that I really hated training it. So, uh, but if you do look at the relatives of the dog, if you look at the whole family of, 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 of the dogs that you're considering uh, breeding from, and you see that with different handlers consistently, they are, you know, really good at a certain certain aspect of training or, 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 or behavior, uh, then you, are, you have higher chances that this will be passed on to, to, to the progeny. <sighs> Generally, uh, yeah, I think that typically people tend to uh, go for, yeah, if my dog is really bad at something, I'll find a, 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 a dog that is really good at something or maybe, you know, going over the top in that in that trait. I don't think that this is a very efficient uh, strategy. I think that the more efficient one is making gradual improvements every generation, making sure that you're getting as, as many ticks uh, as, 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 as possible. Oh, interesting. This is... Uh, this is really fascinating conversation and i've really enjoyed it and i i also like particularly i'm thankful to you because it's a very hard conversation to have in your role um you know especially because dog breeding and the kennel club and registries and all of that stuff is just so divided there are so many different opinions um that it's kind of impossible to please everyone you know, when we have this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I really appreciate it. And I'm, I'm super thankful. Um, is there anything that you wanted to promote or uh, talk about? Yeah, well, first of all, I should have really thank you for the for the invitation. And um, yeah, this is something that I, I feel very strongly about. I think that we need to have an open, open conversation. Um, exactly like with the different training methods you know um the reality is that in, in all uh circles you will find people that are good at what they do and people that are not so good at what they do um and being kind of open and and, and trying to find a common way that will bring the most uh fruitful solutions is is, is really what we need um so from my my uh my perspective of a geneticist um, I'm mostly interested in both the genetic diversity and the complex traits. So with complex traits, uh, the reality is that we are not... Uh, yeah, I wouldn't hold my breath for DNA testing uh, for, for, for complex traits just because of the impact of the environment and the fact that uh, in, in most of those traits we have huge numbers of genes that are affecting uh, a, a particular uh, trait. 
Um, however, from livestock world, we have uh, we have uh, implemented the uh, estimated breeding values, which can be used to improve uh, the the uh, well decrease the predisposition to to to, to some of those complex traits. Um, the problem with with complex traits is that if we want to do anything about them, we need data. Um, and uh, this is one of the benefits of, of the Kennel Club, in my opinion, uh, because the Kennel Club is the, the body that gathers this data. But, you know, we can gather all the data that we want, but the data has to be generated in the first place. So um, I'm assuming that majority of your, uh, of your listeners will have dogs. Uh, if you have pedigree dogs in, in, in particular, I would really encourage everyone to to familiarize themselves with uh, with the health testing that is recommended in the breed, whether you are planning on breeding from your dog or not. Um, and this is because um, even if you're not going to breed from your dog, the data that we get from your dog is actually going to improve our understanding of the prevalence of the condition. It will allow us to calculate, for for example, the uh, breeding values more accurately. So that the information that we then provide back to breeders is more more accurate. Um, sometimes we will have surveys um, that people can can fill out at no cost. You know, most of the time they are not very long, uh, but you know we are trying to develop new tools, but we need people to to actually help us with that. Um, and yeah, I think that we we've uh, we've talked about it before we started the podcast, but. Um, so I, I am employed by the Kennel Club, so I cannot be a member. Um, I have made the decision to join the Kennel Club because I knew that I had the skills that could bring a change, um, that I could actually contribute um, to, to, to the improvement in the dog health and, and well-being in general. Um, but I would say that, um, you know, the Kennel Club is a member organization. Uh, a lot of decisions are driven by, well, pretty much all the decisions are driven by what the members decide. Um, so if you have enthusiasm and uh, and a lot of uh, you know uh, power behind you <laughs> behind your mindset, I, I would really encourage you to to consider becoming a member because uh, or, or maybe even you know see whether there are any job openings at the Kennel Club that you could be interested in uh, because we all want the world of dog breeding to move in the right direction and Kennel Club is one organization that has a very important role so perhaps you're the person that will you know push the the scale in the direction that we want well wow I feel daft I didn't even know that that was I know it sounds silly I didn't even realize you could become a member so that's uh that's really interesting and hopefully you know the people that are listening to this can all flood the Kennel Club membership with progressive people (laughs) Well, the more the, the, more, the merrier. <laughs> um, okay, fantastic. I'm definitely going to become a member. You've signed me up already. Um, is there anything else that people can kind of, any other ways? I don't know. Are there any other resources or anything like that that the Kennel Club could provide? Yeah, so so one of the things that I, I certainly didn't know about when I was uh, when I was joining the Kennel Club is the, the amount of resources that are available on the website. And we are uh, continuously working on that. So... Uh, let's say you're interested in the health of, of uh, a Labrador retriever, 
Um, if you just put the Labrador Retriever Kennel Club uh, in, in Google search or any other search engine, it will lead you to what we call a breeds A to Z um, section. Um, so every breed has its own page. And very near the top, there is a section on health where you'll have information about the recommended health testing. Um, so, and, and each uh, of the health tests is, is explained in detail. So there are pages um, that are linked from there. Um, so this is really good, um, both when you are considering uh, your own dog uh, as a breeding prospect, but very important when you are thinking about buying a puppy. So um, we've talked before about, you know, sometimes having to make difficult decisions when, when, when choosing dogs for breeding. Um, so if, you're, if you are considering buying a puppy, um, I would certainly expect the parents to be tested for the recommended health conditions. Now, if you find that the, the, the parents are a carrier for a specific condition, well, ideally only one of the parents, pa parents is, is um, a carrier of a specific condition, I would encourage you to have a conversation with the breeder. And, and having an open and honest uh, relationship with a breeder is, is very, very important. So if a breeder comes back to me and says that, yes, I have made the decision to breed a carrier because I prioritize this condition and also this dog had these values that uh, these uh, these traits that are valued in my breeding program then I would be very very happy to purchase a, a puppy from from that breeder if you go to someone who says that I don't do health testing because it's not important I would personally personally walk away um, so the the actual results that you have on the dog are in my personal opinion less important than the presence of the health testing in the first place so this is kind of um, a, a resource that hopefully is going to help you choose choose the, the, the right puppies. Um, but also, if you're kind of interested in the health of the of the breed at a deeper level, uh, on our uh, breeds A to Z page, we also have the the um, either direct direct contact details or there is like a link that if, if someone doesn't want their email to be to be publicly available for the breed health coordinators. So these are the volunteer representatives of the breeds um, that we at the health team of the Canon Club, we, we uh, collaborate with them very, very closely. Um, and they are the people that will have a really intimate knowledge of all the health issues in the breed. Um, and um, if, let's say, you have a, a dog of a, of, of a breed with a new bizarre condition and you're searching for more information, this person is likely to be your first port, port of call. Um, and also for, so this is a, a big project that we've run uh, over the last few years. So that was before I started at the Kennel Club. Um, we have actually collated all the evidence base for the health conditions in every single breed. Um, we call these breed health and conservation plans. So this is, this is a humongous project. Uh, nothing like this has been done before on, on that scale. Uh, but basically, we have collated all the scientific literature uh, together with all the available survey data, uh, both our own and maybe uh, run by the breed clubs. And on top of that, also insurance data um, to try and, and, and find the evidence for the most uh, pertaining uh, health issues in, in, in specific breeds. So in some cases, those documents are massive. Um, so we don't have them on our website. Um, they have been kind of passed on to the, the uh, breed health co uh, coordinators. Uh, but in most cases, if you type a breed health and conservation plan and the name of your breed in the Google search, 
uh, you will find a PDF of that document. Now, I, I need to uh, kind of warn you that it's slightly dry reading. So it's 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 done kind of in a scientific, uh, not fully jargony, but uh, but yeah, it has a lot of references. So it's not light reading, but if you if you really want to dig deep, um, then it's a, a really amazing resource. Um, and yeah, other than that, um, yeah, I think that's that's it for now. <laughs> oh, well, thanks so much. I really appreciate you doing the podcast with me. And thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Joanna. Personally, I absolutely loved it. And it makes me feel good to know that there are people like Joanna at the Kennel Club uh, that are progressive and really trying to move the water pedigree dogs in in a good way. Um, and I feel very motivated to take Joanna's advice, become a member of the Kennel Club so that we have a say in that. And I hope that you guys feel the same way. Um but yeah, absolutely love this podcast. Before you go, I do want to tell you or remind you rather that it would help me tremendously if you would take a screenshot of the podcast and share it on Instagram, share it on Facebook, um, or just let someone know about the podcast. That really helps us to continue to grow. Podcasts are quite hard to make discoverable. And you guys doing that is something that, you know, really does make a tangible difference. So I really appreciate that. Until the next episode, I'll see you soon.